following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So kia ora, Shaw. It's great to be with you again, whether you're here in person or whether you're uh, joining us on live stream. It's great to be with you guys as well as we finish up this Royal series. Hasn't this been a great series? You guys enjoyed it here? I think it's just been wonderful, and certainly the, the sense that, that Reuben and Jonathan and I have all had as we've gone between the, the different congregations has been that this has just been a pretty remarkable series in terms of what we've learned, um, the kings, the nine kings that we've chosen to concentrate on, the lessons that we've learned from them. It's just been wonderful. And so we finished the series up today, hence we're, we're back with the throne and the red carpet. I'm not going to sit on the throne. I'm not a king. Um, but it's a great way just to finish up the series and to celebrate the, the, the series that we've enjoyed. We've um, put together these, these little bookmarks just to celebrate. Now, these are on the communion tables, and so at the end of this message, I'm going to invite you to come and take communion, and also, if you'd like to, just to grab one of these little bookmarks. But they've got the, the name on the front of the nine kings that we have been looking at, um, as well as a single word just to kind of help us remember what the key lesson was from each of the kings uh, that we've studied. And so today, as we wrap the series up and come to our ninth and final king out of more than 40 that we could have chosen from, we come to, uh, personally, the king that I believe was the best, probably the greatest of any of the kings of Israel. Now, that's a big call when you think about, you know, David's come before and, and Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat, some other names you may be familiar with. But today, we are looking at King Josiah. And I want to suggest to you that I think King Josiah uh, most definitely is uh, the best of the kings. And that's because of the way that Josiah himself is described in the text of Scripture. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along with me today, uh, we're in first, uh, sorry, 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. And the, the, the words, some of the verses, key verses will come up on the screens as well. But if you've got your, your app on your phone or a paper Bible and you want to kind of follow along uh, with me, you're welcome to do that. But the story is found in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. So you may have noticed as we've gone through this series that often there's this introductory formula at the beginning of each king's reign. And that's what we find at the beginning of 2 Kings 22. And so it starts out this way, verse 1 says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah, and she was from Bozkath. So he was seven, uh, sorry, eight years old when he first sat in the, on the throne of Judah. He's one of two boy kings. So about two centuries before Josiah comes on the scene, and Josiah is one of the very last of the kings of Judah, there was a young king called Joash, who we haven't looked at in this series, but he was seven years old when he came to the throne of Judah. And now for the second time, there's this young kid on the throne, Josiah, as an eight-year-old comes to the throne because his dad, Amon, the son of wicked king Manasseh, who you looked at last week, uh, Amon was assassinated after only two years in the throne. He was so bad that his own officials got rid of him. And they placed this eight-year-old monarch on the throne. 
And here's then what it says in the second part of the summary in verse two about this young king. He did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So Josiah is one of eight kings out of the 20 in the southern kingdom of Judah who walk with Yahweh for most of their reign. So in the northern kingdom that we called Israel after the kingdom split in half, they had 20 rulers and they had zero who followed God, not one. In the south, they also had 20 rulers and they had eight out of 20 who who walked with God. So not even 50%. But one of those eight is Josiah. But what's interesting about Josiah is this little phrase that comes at the end of verse two, if you notice that. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, that's a phrase that comes out of earlier parts of the Old Testament that uh, really is built around the idea of the scriptures or the law or God's word that's been given to God's people. And the metaphor is that, that God's word provides us almost with a pathway for us to walk on in life. And so the idea is to not depart to the right or to the left, is to not step aside or not step away from the pathway that God's word gives us. Now what's interesting is that Josiah is the only king of whom that is said. So there's already a uniqueness about him plus the fact that he followed completely the ways of his ancestor, David. So that's how his reign is introduced. If you then come towards the end of chapter 23, there is this amazing summary of his reign at the end of his narrative. It says this in verse 25 of chapter 23. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him, who turned to Yahweh as he did, with all his heart and all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. So this, uh, this particular terminology that's being used by the author of Second Kings, of course, is a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, from one of the most important commands in the Old Testament, that the people of Israel were to love Yahweh their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength. And those words are probably familiar to you because Jesus picks them up in the New Testament And what does he call that? The greatest commandment. Jesus says the most important thing to do out of everything the Old Testament teaches, the scriptures that he had in his day, the most important command is to love God wholeheartedly with everything you've got. And the writer here of 2 Kings, as he comes to the end of the narrative we're going to look at of Josiah today, he comes to the end of Josiah's reign and says there was never a king like Josiah who did what Deuteronomy called the people of God to do, who loved God wholeheartedly. Now, does that mean he was perfect, that he wasn't a sinner? Of course not. Uh, All of us have sinned, including Josiah. He made mistakes. He had a sinful heart. He needed a savior, just like you and I do. But out of all of the kings, second king is making a real effort to help us understand that one of the last kings to sit on the throne of Judah is probably the best. So why is that? What is it about this this young king who comes to the throne as a boy? What is it that makes him different to all the kings that have come before, even his illustrious ancestor David? What is it that helped this king to follow God and love God and honor him so wholeheartedly? 
Let me rephrase that question slightly and ask it this way. What is at the heart of a wholehearted king? And if we were to think about that in terms of our own lives today, what is at the heart of a wholehearted woman? What is at the heart of a wholehearted man who follows God? And the answer that Second Kings is going to provide us, the focus of the narrative, the story of Josiah, is that at the heart of a wholehearted king is a heart for the word of God. At the heart of a wholehearted king was a heart for the word of God. And that's really what his whole story is centered around. So the story begins properly back in chapter 22, verse 3, after those introductory verses we've read. Verse 3 reads, In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Mishalim, to the temple of Yahweh. He wants to rebuild the temple. So this is the 18th year of his reign. He's now a 26-year-old. And so Second uh, Kings jumps almost into the midpoint of his reign. But if you go to the parallel passage or the parallel story about his life in the book of Second Chronicles later on that was written about a century later, what you find is that this is actually one step in almost the spiritual pilgrimage of this young king. So he came to the throne as an eight-year-old, but then Second Chronicles tells us that as a 16-year-old, he, we would describe it, he came to faith in Yahweh. He had a personal encounter with the living God and, and became a personal follower of Yahweh as a 16-year-old. So as a teenage king, he encountered Yahweh in a personal way and comes to faith. Then as a 20-year-old, he begins to clean up the land of idolatry. And maybe it took four years for him to consolidate the power of the throne as a young man, or maybe it took a few years for him to really understand what, um, what he was called to do as king. But as a 20-year-old, he starts cleaning up the land. And now as a 26-year-old, he begins this massive repair job of the great temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And the reason is because his granddad, Manasseh, had let it fall to ruin, had introduced a whole bunch of idolatrous things inside the temple. It had, had absolutely been left to ruin. And so Josiah leads this massive building campaign to refresh and renew and revive and repair the temple of Yahweh as a 26-year-old. Now, what happens is something dramatic. Down in verse 8, we read this. 2 Kings 22, verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest, who's leading the repairs, he says to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of Yahweh. And he gave it to Shaphan, who read it. And then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported it to him. So, two questions here. What is this book of the law, and why was it missing? So there's some debate around this, but I think the best suggestion is that this book of the law is what you and I know as the book of Deuteronomy. So in the beginning of our Old Testaments, there's these five books that we call the books of Moses or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, and Deuteronomy is kind of like the summary of the other four. Deuteronomy is basically the message or the sermon, if you like, that Moses preached to the people of Israel right before he dies. 
So he's led them out of Egypt. They've been uh, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years while one generation dies out and a new generation grows up. And now Deuteronomy is Moses' reminder of everything that the law says and a call to a new generation of Israelites to love God with everything they've got, to love God wholeheartedly. That's what the book of the law is. And Deuteronomy actually calls itself the book of the law. So best guess, there is debate around it, but best guess is what they've discovered in the temple hidden away somewhere is the scroll of Deuteronomy. Now, why was it missing? Well, because the Old Testament law dictated that a copy of the book of the law, so most probably Deuteronomy, was to be laid out inside the temple. So that whenever the priests came, whenever the people came to worship God, there is a copy of the law laid out for them, reminding them of who they are and their obligations to follow God and walk with him wholeheartedly. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in the closing chapters, there are these chapters that lay out for the people of Israel a key choice to either follow God and obey his laws and walk with him wholeheartedly or not. And if they do, there's this whole list of blessings that will come on them as a people. But then there's this corresponding list of curses and judgments that will come on them if they fail to obey the law. And that's what's laid out in the book of the law that was laid out in the temple. So why did it go missing? Well, earlier in Kings, there's references to the book of the law. So it hasn't been missing for centuries. So again, the best guess is probably that during the reign of granddad Manasseh, either one of the really good priests thought Manasseh's going to do something drastic like burn this thing, so I'm going to go hide it in one of the storage cupboards in the back, or one of the wicked priests who was serving Manasseh said, we don't want that around, and shoved it in a back corner. Either way, at some point, the scroll of Deuteronomy had gone missing. So for probably half a century, the people of Israel had not read the summary of God's laws and the blessings and the curses and the call to walk with God and love him wholeheartedly. And that is what has been discovered. And it's that discovery of that particular scroll, it's the discovery of the book of the law, the word of God, that is going to shape Josiah's entire reign. And 2 Kings is going to tell us in chapters 22 and 23 about three key responses that Josiah will make to the discovery of the book of the law. The first response is this. He wholeheartedly listened to the word. He wholeheartedly listened to the word of God. Here's what happens when Shaphan the secretary is given the scroll by the high priest. Verse 10. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. And remember, Josiah is 26 years old. He's been on the throne 18 years. He's been a personal follower of God himself for a decade. He has never heard the words of Deuteronomy. He has never heard the words of the book of the law. And he hears what God says in Deuteronomy. He hears the call for Israel to love God and walk with God wholeheartedly. He hears the blessings that will come on them if they obey God and the curses that will fall on them. 
and he tears his robes in response. Why? Because he's looking back on the history as, as a people through hundreds of years, and he goes, good night, we are dead meat. Because we have failed to obey what God has said in his law. And he listens deeply to the word. He doesn't just go, oh, that's interesting. We've found an ancient document. That's kind of cool. No, he takes this as the word of God and he hears the word of God and he allows it to impact his life and he responds to it in a, in a very profound way of repentance. I can't help thinking how different the contrast is between Josiah's story and you and I. Josiah hadn't even heard, heard this part of the word of God. He'd been on the throne almost 20 years. He didn't, he didn't even have the word. Contrast that with us. Do you know that we, out of any other generation of, of followers of God in human history, we have greater access to the word of God than any generation before us? We do, don't we? We have more translations, we have more versions, we have more printed copies of it available to us. We now have it in technology. We can jump on our laptops, our computers, we can be in our car driving somewhere, we can be sitting on the beach, pull it up on our phone, we have apps, we have versions. We are amazingly blessed in ways that previous generations have never, ever had. And the question is, are we listening and responding to the word? the way that Josiah did. Came across this beautiful quote um, a, a few years ago that I really love in an article written by a couple of pastors. They write, the word is in our pockets and on our coffee tables like a love letter waiting to be perused or a feast waiting to be devoured. So here's the question I want us to ponder for just a minute. Are we perusing the love letter? Are we devouring the feast? Are we listening to the word that we have been blessed with so profoundly and abundantly? See, King Josiah hasn't even heard the words of Deuteronomy before. You and I have more copies of the word available to us than ever. Are we listening wholeheartedly the way he did? Are we taking the word of God on board in our lives? Because the tragedy is that study after study over the past few decades has shown around the Western world, at least, and the church, Christians who, who are followers of Jesus, the number, the percentage of us who are regularly in the word is decreasing year after year after year. And, and the proportion of biblical illiteracy is climbing among followers of Jesus. And so there's this serious challenge, I think, in the story of King Josiah to us. Are we taking the word seriously? Or, or has it become so commonplace now in our lives, so available to us, that we don't really value what we're holding in our hands and on our phones and on our coffee tables? In the last few years, I've come across an author that I really love called Paul David Tripp. And in a book I just picked up of his, I came across this outstanding, provocative question. If I could listen in on and watch a month of your life, what would I conclude about the place of God's word in your life? If I could listen in on the last month, he asks, 
If I could watch a month of your life, what would I conclude about how you value the word of God? See, that's a, I think that's the question that the story of King Josiah is provoking in us. He wholeheartedly listened to the word. So let me just ask this question for a minute. It's going to come up on our screens. Do we regularly, do you regularly feed on God's word through listening, reading, studying, and meditating on it? It's the question I want us to really ponder for just a moment. Are we taking God's word into our lives on a regular basis? Whether that's listening to an audio vision, version on the bus, going into uni or work, whether that's reading a devotional, whether that's sitting down at lunchtime with it open in front of us, whether it's, it's reading some kind of um, scripture thing at the end of our day, whatever it looks like for you, but are we taking the word into our lives on a regular basis? Are we wholeheartedly listening to the word in some shape or form? And if your answer to that question is, yeah, yeah, I am doing that. And, you know, maybe not every single day because life gets a bit crazy sometimes, but I have a regular pattern of taking God's word into my life. My prayer is that King Josiah's story would simply encourage you to continue to formulate that habit. And if you're not in that habit right now, if your answer to this question is, you know what? the busyness of life, the craziness of where our kids are up to, the pressure of uni studies, whatever it is, I'm not actually doing this. My hope and prayer out of this message is that you will take the example of Josiah to heart and you will begin a habit of being in God's word every day. And here's my suggestion. If you're not regularly doing that, please don't go, okay, I feel so challenged by this. I'm gonna study God's word starting tonight. I'm gonna devote an hour a day in the original Greek and Hebrew languages, with multiple lexicons and commentaries all around. No. When we do that kind of stuff, we inevitably fail, don't we? My suggestion is, you know what? I'm going to start a habit of carving out two to three minutes, the beginning of my day, end of my day, lunchtime, on the bus ride, whatever it is. I'm going to start small. My suggestion, there's been this brilliant devotional for this royal series. I don't know how many of you guys have been following that online or have had a paper copy of it. If this is not a habit in your life right now, my suggestion would be to grab that devotional or download it and for the next nine weeks, go back over the royal series. Because for each day in, in that devotional, there's a portion of God's word to read and there's a couple of paragraphs written by one of the pastoral staff down at Grace City and it will take you about three or four minutes. Maybe start there. Because the key is to start small and begin a habit of allowing God's word to begin to transform your life day after day after day. That's what happened in Josiah's life. He wholeheartedly listened to the word. Second thing, second response that Josiah makes, he not only wholeheartedly listened to the word, he wholeheartedly submitted to the word. He wholeheartedly submitted it to the word. In other words, he took the word of God on board and he allowed it to challenge and change and shape him and who he was and his life and the lives of the people he led. Through the rest of, the, of chapter 22, and we don't have time uh, to read it, but he, he had heard the words of Deuteronomy, the blessings, the curses. He knew they were in trouble. The curses were gonna come on them. He tore his robes in, in, a, in a mark of personal repentance. And then he sends his most important officials to one of the prophets of Israel. 
Now, what's really interesting, in Josiah's reign, there are at least four of the prophets that we know that authored part of the Old Testament. So Jeremiah is around during Josiah's day, and Zephaniah, and Nahum, and, 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 uh, and Habakkuk, those four. But he doesn't send his officials to any of those four. Instead, he sends his officials in the rest of chapter 22 to a prophetess, a woman prophet by the name of Hilda. And we have no idea why he bypasses Jeremiah and Habakkuk and goes to Hilda, but that's what he does. And so he sends his officials to Hilda, and they come to Hilda, and they say, the book of the law has been found. This is what King Josiah has read. And here's his question. Are these curses going to come on us? And Hilda says, hear the word of the Lord. The bad news is, absolutely, judgment's coming. The people of Israel have forsaken me for so long, my wrath is going to be poured out. The good news is that because Josiah has, has repented and responded so beautifully and powerfully, judgment is going to wait until after he has passed away. And it is in the, the four rules of the kings who come after him, three of his sons and one grandson, the kingdom only will last less than 25 years after Josiah's death. And because the judgment of God comes through the mighty Babylonian empire. But it's going to hold off until Josiah uh, has died. That's, that's the promise of Hilda. Now, Josiah, sitting on his throne, he could have just gone, oh, well, that's good then. <laughs> I mean, it's bad that it's, you know, our, our kids and grandkids are going to be smoked, but, oh, I'm all right. Sweet, I'll just, you know, sit back and enjoy another pina colada or something. But he doesn't do that. Instead, Josiah chooses to humble himself under what the word of God says and says, you know what? I can't save a future generation from judgment if God's going to pour out judgment. But I can change our generation. I can make a difference in the lives of my people now. And so he chooses to lead the people that he is ruling over in an incredible, really a revival of their heart commitment to Yahweh. And so at the beginning of chapter 23, you see this amazing event take place. And this is part of his wholehearted submission to the word. He's not content to just listen to the word. He's saying, we need to change as a people. And I can't change the next generation, but I can change this one. And so here's what happens. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then the king called together all of the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And he went up to the temple of Yahweh with the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all of the people from the greatest to the least. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of Deuteronomy. Sorry, the book of the covenant, which was Deuteronomy, which had been found in the temple of Yahweh. So don't miss that. King Josiah stands before his people, unfolds, unfurls the scroll of Deuteronomy, and he reads the entire book of Deuteronomy to his people as the king. He wants them to hear the word of God. And then he leads them in the ceremony, almost in a church service. Verse 3, the king stood by the pillar in the temple, and he renewed the covenant in the presence of Yahweh to follow Yahweh and to keep his commands and statutes and decrees with all of his heart and all of his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book, and the people pledged themselves to the covenant. You see, way back in, in Deuteronomy, 
And at the end of Moses' life, he's about to die, and he preaches the sermon, which is what Deuteronomy contains. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, he says, choose life or death, blessing or curse. I'm calling you as a new generation about to enter the promised land, choose life. And it's a, a renewal of the covenant, their relationship with God as his people. You get to the end of the next book of the Bible, Joshua. Joshua has led them through the conquest of the land. And then at the end of Joshua's life, when he's about to die, Joshua 24, he does the same thing. Calls all of the people together. Renews the covenant, reminds them, reads to them the book of the law. And he says those famous words in Joshua 24. Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. That's covenant renewal. And that is what Josiah is doing. You can imagine King Josiah standing in the temple, looking out across the, the, the people that he leads, reading them the words of Deuteronomy, and then saying, repeating the words of Joshua. You choose today who you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we are going to serve Yahweh. And all of the people respond to King Josiah and say, so are we. And the book of the law the word of God leads this dramatic transformation, even as judgment is hanging over them as a nation. Because the king not only wholeheartedly listened to the word, he submitted himself to it. He placed himself under it, and he allowed the word of God to challenge his life and the lives of his people. So second reflection question I want us to ponder for a moment. Do we allow God's word to challenge and shape our beliefs and our worldview and our decisions and our behaviors. Not only are we now listening to the word, but do we allow the word of God to challenge and to shape us, to dictate what's important to us, to shape our, our values and beliefs? See, here's a key question. Do we come to the Bible when we're struggling with a sense of identity, that answer to that, that huge question, who am I? What value is there in me? Do we come to the word of God and allow God's word to shape our understanding of who we are? Or do we choose to look inside ourselves at our own feelings and our beliefs that can be so up and down the way our culture tells us to? As we're facing major decisions in life, do we come and seek out the wisdom of God's word to help guide that decision? Or do we just make decisions based on whatever it is that we want? When we're going through dark valleys and deep difficulties and hardships in life, when sometimes, let's be honest, it can feel like God's a million miles away, do we come to the word of God and go, no matter what it feels like, I'm going to trust what God has said in his word, that he is walking beside me through this valley? Or am I going to give in to the despair and the feelings that I have that God feels so far away? Do I allow the word of God to define what success and failure look like in life? Or am I letting the culture and society around me Tell me what success and failure look like. See, that's what it means to submit to the word. To allow God's word to challenge and to shape what it is we truly believe in our heart of hearts. To shape our values and our worldview and our beliefs and therefore our behaviors. Josiah wholeheartedly listened to the word. 
and he wholeheartedly submitted himself under the word. And then he wholeheartedly, thirdly, he obeyed the word. He obeyed what God's word called the people to do. And so in the rest of chapter 23, he begins to live out what Deuteronomy called the people of God to do. And so in a huge chunk of chapter 23 that we don't have time to read, he begins to eradicate, even to a greater degree than he had done, every vestige, every last piece of idolatry and evil worship and false gods and goddesses from right out of the land. He completely cleans out the temple that his um, grandfather and father had completely messed up. He hunts down every false priest who worships false gods. He goes to these places called the high places, which is where the people would sometimes go to hills to worship false gods because that was closer to heaven. The high places had been part of Israel's story since the days of King Solomon. He wipes them all out. He takes the valley outside of Jerusalem where his granddad Manasseh practiced child sacrifice. And Josiah turns it into the city dump. That's the city dump when Jesus is alive. Because Josiah goes nuts. He completely eradicates every last piece of evil and false worship and idolatry he can find across the land. Even going up into the northern kingdom that by now has been destroyed and taken away. And he destroys the altar up in in the city of Bethel. He's just eradicating evil wherever he can find it. But it's not only a negative response to God's word. It's the positive response. He also seeks to renew people's heart for God and their response to God and their worship of God as a nation. And so he leads this incredible festival called Passover. And the story is told of that towards the end of chapter 23. If you're you're following along, come over to verse 21. This is brilliant. Verse 21 reads, the king gave this order. This is after all of the the negative eradication of everything. Now here's a, a positive response and obedience. The king gave this order to all of the people. Celebrate to Yahweh your God. Celebrate the Passover. As it is written in the book of the covenant. So notice that. He he reinstitutes one of the three great festivals of the people of Israel, Passover, which was the celebration of the exodus from Egypt. But he says, we're going to practice it exactly how we're told to in the Bible, in the word. And so they practice the Passover the way that God had clearly laid out in his word. And then the writer tells us this, verse 22. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, Nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to Yahweh in Jerusalem. Do you know what he's saying? Passover had not been celebrated like this for more than 800 years. You have to go back to Joshua's day to find a time when the people of Israel actually celebrated Passover the way they did under the reign of Josiah. Josiah does this incredible job, not just of negatively obeying God by getting rid of all evil, but positively leading the people to really go after God and obey God and worship God and celebrate God with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their strength, just as he did. So here's the third reflection question. Do we put into practice the truth of God's word by culling 
the evil and cultivating the good in our lives. See, that's what Josiah did. And that's what chapter 23 is outlining for us. He puts into practice everything God's word calls the people to do by both culling the evil and cultivating the good. Is that how we operate in our lives? Do we allow God's word to continually be at work in our lives? Do we allow the Holy Spirit who inspired that word to convict and challenge us about the things that we need to put aside and the things that we need to grow in? When we come over to the New Testament, we're we're told to put off practices and characteristics and behaviors like bitterness and unforgiveness and greed and pride, and we're told to put on kindness, compassion, forgiveness, love, peacemaking. Do we allow God's word to engage our lives so that we're culling the evil and cultivating the good? See, King Josiah, he listened wholeheartedly, and he submitted wholeheartedly, and he obeyed the word wholeheartedly. And that's why I believe the writer of Kings tells us he was the best of them. He was the best of them. Because at the heart of this wholehearted king was a heart for the word of God. And he responded so strongly to what God had revealed in his word. He followed God with a whole heart. As we finish then, I want to put these three questions, these three reflection questions I've asked back on the screen altogether. And I invite you to take just a moment of quiet with the Holy Spirit to consider your own life and your own interaction with God's Word. See, Josiah wholeheartedly listens, so are we regularly feeding on God's Word, listening, reading, studying, meditating? He wholeheartedly submitted to God's Word, so are we allowing God's Word to challenge and to shape our core values our, our, our deep beliefs, our understanding of life and who we are and our behaviors. And he wholeheartedly obeyed. So are we allowing God's word to continually call us to reform our own hearts and cull what is evil and cultivate more and more what is good? As you think about your interaction, your habits around God's word, what is it that you believe God would have you do more. Because my prayer is that we finish up this royal series. Josiah's life would call all of us to walk with God more wholeheartedly by growing a heart for his word. As we finish up then, I actually want to pull away from Josiah in particular, leave these questions aside, And I actually want to pull back and consider this whole series that we've done over these nine weeks. Because we said at the start, it's been a fantastic series, hasn't it? But here's the reality. I think the nine kings that we have studied and the, the other 30 or more that we could have looked at as well, all of them in a sense are pointing us to another king. You see, because each of the kings, the good, the bad, and the ugly, none of them measure up. None of them are the ultimate king that you and I need. 
See, let me read again this amazing summary of, of King Josiah, the one who I believe was the best of the kings. Verse 25. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to Yahweh as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Amazing, isn't it? But here's what it says next. Nevertheless, Yahweh did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger and all that the people did under Manasseh. So Yahweh said, I'm going to remove Judah from my presence as I removed Israel. I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and I will reject this temple about which I said my name will be there. See, listen, as good as Josiah was, he could not undo the past. He could not undo the sin and rebellion of centuries. He could not take away God's wrath. He could not fix up the sin and atone for the sin problem. He could not change the hearts of his people to make them follow God. He could not take this covenant of Deuteronomy with blessings and curses and go, you know what? No one can obey this. Let's put that aside and bring in a new covenant that somehow allows us to relate to God differently. As good as Josiah was, the best of the kings, he couldn't undo everything that was wrong. But a king was going to come. From the line of Josiah, who would do exactly that, who would step into human history, and he would undo all the wrong, and he would atone for the sin, he would turn aside the wrath of God, he would begin to change the hearts of his people through his indwelling spirit, and he would take that covenant and lay it aside and bring in a whole new covenant by which people could relate to Almighty God, utterly by grace. That king's name is Jesus. And I want to argue as we finish the royal series that every single king of Israel and Judah, the good, the bad, and the ugly, every one of them are ultimately meant to be pointing us to the king who will come, the one that we need, the king who has stepped into human history already, to deal with the problem of our sin and rebellion and brokenness against God, paying for our sins by dying on the cross, rising again to open up the way to God and bring in a whole new covenant. And that king is going to come again to establish his kingdom once and for all and to reign on the throne of his father David forever and ever and ever. That is the promise of the king's. And that is why, thank you, and that is why as you come to the table in a few minutes, and if you want to, to take this bookmark, what you'll find on the back is one of the many promises and covenant ideas of this coming king. I've deliberately chosen, actually, one of the, most, one of the more obscure prophecies of the king who is to come. But Isaiah 16.5 reads, In love... A throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging will seek justice and who will speed the cause of righteousness. That's the king we follow. That's the king that Josiah and the rest of them were pointing to. 
That's the king who is taking care of our sin problem. And that's the king who is going to come again and establish his eternal kingdom forever and ever and ever. So in these next few minutes, I want to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to come to the tables back in front and take the bread and the juice, which Jesus said is a symbol of this new covenant we operate under, and take one of these bookmarks, as you wish, as a reminder of our great King of Kings. Lord Jesus, we bow before you as our King. We thank you that you have stepped into the line of David and that you have done what none of the kings could do. You have turned aside God's holy wrath. You have atoned for our sin and rebellion and brokenness. You have brought in a new covenant. You have poured out your spirit on those of us who have put our faith in you. And one day you are coming to establish your kingdom in all of its fullness for all of time, forever and ever. And as we come to the end of this wonderful royal series, thank you that ultimately the whole series lifts our eyes to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we come and we take bread and juice and we celebrate you and we worship you and remember you, knowing that it is only until you come again. So we take the emblems today. And as we do so, we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.